0: Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Good evening, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Tom Waller. I'm chair of the club's Business and Leadership Member-Led Forum and in conjunction with the Environment and Natural Resources Member-Led Forum here at the club, your host for today. Today's program is entitled Solar Power Update: California's Moment in the Sun. We want to welcome our audience who has come tonight, and I certainly will indicate that there's something about as they say, timing in life is everything. I don't know if you heard anything today about the big announcement over at the baseball park with the installation of solar panels over there, and apparently one of the first in the, uh, in the baseball league on that. And, of course, uh, we've got our program tonight to update us on, on solar power. The World Energy Council has estimated that global demand for electricity will triple by 2050. The lion's share of the increased demand will be in developing nations, but the United States and the European Union nations will need more megawatts, too, even assuming increases in energy efficiency. It's all but certain that some form of greenhouse gas regulation will come to the United States. I've read that many Fortune 500 CEOs already assume this. The result will be an electricity sector that's much more technology and knowledge-sensitive than today. Lots of brainpower and skill will be required. So what about renewable energy, including wind, solar power, and biofuels? Amidst all our nation's strong desire for energy independence and the highly desirable vision of kicking our habit for fossil fuel, it seems, all things considered, that no form of green energy is yet fully cost-competitive with fossil energy, and no one knows which may eventually win in the marketplace. But tonight we'll take a comprehensive look at solar energy, where we are, the promising developments, and the many challenges that still lie ahead. What I'd like to do is introduce our moderator for this evening, who himself is one of the subject matter expert panelists, Mr. Arno Harris, CEO of Recurrent Energy. Please join me in welcoming Arno.
1: Thank you, Tom, for that introduction. Uh, And thanks all of you for showing up for this event. It's great to see such wonderful turnout. When we first uh, started putting this event together with Tom, uh, we were concerned that we might have chosen the big room, but I think uh, we could have even gone for something bigger. So, um, and then one more thanks. I just want to thank the club for hosting the event, and then also wanted to thank my brother-in-law, Brett Ladove, who actually introduced me to Tom Waller originally uh, to sort of get the ball rolling here. Uh, family can be a, a very wonderful thing sometimes. Um, I want to keep my remarks fairly brief. Uh, what I'd like to do is just frame the topic for this evening's discussion uh, and then go ahead and introduce our panelists because I'm really interested to hear what they have to say tonight as well. So with that, I'll just dive right in. Probably the best place to start is with a short history of the of photovoltaic solar power. So if we set the Wayback Machine all the way to 1876, believe it or not, uh, that's when we first saw the photoelectric effect observed in selenium. And we won't go year by year here. Because it's a long way till about 1953 before uh, we really see what we would consider today to the first modern form of a a solar cell Um, at Bell Labs. The uh, the first silicon photovoltaic uh, cells were developed uh, in that lab uh, back then. Um, sort of cast about a little while for a, a market in the mid-50s, and luckily one appeared sort of towards the end of the 50s and carried it through most of the 60s, which was the space industry. turned out it was kind of hard to get electric power uh, when you were above the Earth's surface, and solar turned out to be a very handy answer to that problem. And that market continues today. Um, It really was the the early 1970s when um, the introduction of new technologies that basically allowed us to use lower-grade silicon introduced the or made possible, really, the first terrestrial uh, applications on uh, offshore oil platforms, ironically enough, um, followed shortly thereafter in the 70s by the uh, deployment of solar-powered nav-aids by the Coast Guard, which was another uh, major development, and then the development of what we would consider today to be the industrial solar segment uh, powering uh, remote locations, signaling, uh, and telecommunications-type devices. Also in the 70s, we saw the beginning of sort of the real remote solar applications providing power to places that had really never seen electric power before. Push forward a little bit further, uh, and we see sort of the, the, the other major milestone that comes up uh, during the, the late 70s are, of course, the policies that came into being during the Carter administration, uh, symbolized in in many ways by the... Uh, uh, milestone of installing the first solar panels on the White House, which were promptly removed about two years later by Ronald Reagan. But nonetheless, um, during the 80s, the the, the solar market continued to grow and the solar uh, industry continued to grow through the continuation of the segments that had been established earlier, uh, through the the growth in in third-world applications, through the growth of the the off-grid remote market, what we recognize as the off-grid market now, for residential power, and the first beginning of really the on-grid power market, sort of where solar panels are being used to offset or run in parallel with grid power uh, in some large experimental developments in Europe in the late 80s. But I think the main reason for sort of presenting it this way and starting all the way back at the, 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 the very early beginning physics up to here is to give you a sense of just what a remarkable time it is that we're living in in this industry. Um, we've gone from an industry that on this scale just even a, a decade or so ago was almost invisible to one now where you can really see the massive growth that this industry has has been going through. Um, the other, you know, the major trend here to see is sort of the difference between the, on, the off-grid applications, which are the, the small purple bars at the bottom, um, which has been, you know, until a few years ago, it was really thought of as the, 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 the traditional sort of solar application, if you ask somebody how solar power was used. And the application that has absolutely rocketed the industry uh, uh, skyward has been the introduction of, of on-grid applications, um, in part driven by lower, uh, reduced solar costs of the actual technology costs coming down, uh, rising electricity prices, and, you know, frankly, uh, due to very generous and supportive uh, public policy. Um, what we've seen during that period is the rise of Japan, uh, the U.S., particularly California, and Germany as, as uh, major uh, markets, um, and particularly you see that in 2005 there, that big jump up, and that was the introduction by Germany of some uh, uh, incredibly supportive uh, solar policies um, that really played a large part in driving overall global demand, we'll see. So, I mean, clearly a, a series of themes here, then, I'll just touch on briefly before introducing the panel. Um, Clearly, sort of the cost of solar coming down after incentives meeting uh, retail electric rates is a major driver uh, of solar adoption. Another major theme that underlies all of this is the fact that, frankly, the debate about global warming is over. It's real, and I think it's us. Another theme that we've seen grow in the last few years has been uh, instrumental in, I think, galvanizing public support for alternative energy sources is this notion of energy independence, uh, a, a very strong and important growing theme in in public policy development. <laughs> People always laugh at this photo. He's, he's so cute. I don't know.
2: <laughs>
1: he looks nice. Um, I think a, a, another really interesting thing that that I've watched develop, I think, is, is that the lack of federal support has actually resulted in sort of the state stepping in and demonstrating that they can lead. Uh, and to me, that's been a really important development or at least a silver lining to the, to the federal government's stance. Um, all of those factors together, I think, have come together to support what I would call a sort of a comprehensive policy framework, looking at the industry from early R&D all the way through to uh, market development uh, and uh, across a, a range of different com- countries and uh, culminating most recently, I think, in the, the $3 billion uh, uh, budget put together for the California Solar in- uh, Initiative, which is something that I think our panelists will talk a little bit about tonight. Another indicator, I think, of the uh, ascendancy of this space has just been the explosion of investor interest. Uh, In 2006, the total capital raised by solar companies, $4.4 billion, uh, versus 2005's, $1.8 billion. Um, Just an astounding change in uh, year-over-year growth. Um, And then also on the venture investment side, uh, venture investment just in energy generation alone, $1.7 billion, an 83% increase over 2005. More indication of, 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 of big things to come. But I think, you know, to put it all in perspective, even with that rapid growth, um, the reality is there's many megawatts to go. And, you know, if you look at the use of electric power, the generating sources for electric power in the U.S. today, uh, far and away we're still living in the industrial era. Um, the reality is that, you know, renewables, you know, if you include electric or somewhere or hydroelectric, are, are probably in the, the, you know, high single-digit percentages. But really, if you look at what we think of as renewable energy, just 2.3%, and solar is really a small fraction of that, less than 1%. I think the, the optimist in me looks at that and says there's plenty of room to grow. And finally, I think looking at it from the perspective of the topic tonight, um, you know, California has absolutely, as a state... Uh, been unto its own in the U.S. in terms of solar leadership. Uh, and I think that's reflected in the share of the market in the U.S. that it has today. It's roughly about you know, 80% of solar applications in the U.S. happen in California. But if you put that in perspective of the global market, California is, is a very small segment uh, of, of 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 that market, and it's been shrinking, frankly, the last few years. Um, so we're now at a point where worldwide, the U.S. You know only captures about 8% of the global market, and Germany, as you can see there, has is, is established a, a, a very large benchmark. So in framing today's topic, I think you know, the key question that occurred to me in putting together the, the panel is really that we seem to be on the dawn of a new solar era. We've gone through a period of rapid growth. Um, we've seen sort of the major markets established, but it's clear there's a long way to go, and um, What does that new solar era mean for the U.S., for California, and the world? What opportunities and challenges lie ahead for continued solar uh, photovoltaic growth? Uh, And what will be the constraints? And, you know, what role can California and the U.S. play in the global market? I think these are all the really big questions that those of us in the industry think about a lot these days. So with that, I'll introduce our first panelist. Forgive me if I read a little bit because I can't remember all this off the top of my head. But uh, David Edwards is a partner at ThinkEquity. He's head of the Emerging Growth uh, Group, leading the bank's coverage of the green tech industry. As an analyst, he has covered energy technology and Internet companies at American technology research and Internet and software companies at Morgan Stanley. His investment experience includes working as an analyst for a hedge fund and a partner at Charles River Ventures. Dave's industry experience includes project finance at Kinetech Wind Power and product management positions at Apple Computer and Macromedia. I would just say in my view, Dave is a, a, really a rising star playing a critical role in our industry, defining the opportunity for investors, and really sort of laying out the bridge to public markets for new solar companies. Um, he is really in no small part the reason ThinkEquity has become a must-have underwriter of today's green tech IPO syndicates. So please uh, join me in welcoming uh, Dave Edwards.
3: Thank you. Um, With that kind of introduction, I think it's hard not to uh, have a little bit of overpromise under-deliver, but uh, thank you anyway, Arno. Uh, So uh, Arno asked me to just pull together a few slides to talk a bit about the industry. Um, Some of the data will, Arno's already referenced, but I'll talk a little bit about what's happened in the industry, how it's evolved, uh, and also talk a few about uh, just some themes going forward. I just have about ten slides, so I'll be quick, uh, and then we can move on and get to the discussion. Um, one of the key things that comes up is how has is the, the industry really grown? And as Arno said, a lot of this is driven by uh, government incentives. Um, the, this all dates back to uh, 1994, which is the kickoff of the Japanese incentive program. Uh, Japanese set a 10-year program in place <clears throat> at that time. Uh, it, was, it was designed to have a declining subsidy per year. So as, as the industry grew, uh, it would hopefully need less subsidies per year. Uh, and, as you can tell, this slide shows the history of the program. What you're seeing in the bars is actually the dollar value per system. So the blue is what the customer paid and the orange is what the, uh, or the, the sort of orange color is what the government paid. And then the dark blue line is a cumulative installation. So you can see the Japanese program worked. Um, they actually did have declining subsidies over time. There are no subsidies left in Japan. And the solar industry is still, uh, you know, thriving. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, a little bit different there, obviously, because they have very high-cost uh, electricity. But um, then again, I'm talking to a PG&E off, uh, audience. It's not that expensive in comparison to what we pay here. What's happened now is that really uh, the, the change happened in sort of 2004, 2005 with the introduction of the German program. Uh, Germany came out and, and uh, made a very big sta- statement in a renewable energy law, which was the whole purpose was to draw, drive renewable energy broadly across the country, initially with the idea that they were going to shut down all their nuclear plants. Um, they have sort of backed off from that, but they're still very aggressive. Uh, they believe this has been a big success. They put a lot of money into the industry, but they maintain that there's been a net economic benefit for the country, that actually the job growth and the, the tax payments that have b- been delivered to the country far outweigh what's been paid in incentives. But what you see here is each of the different colors represent different um, geographies. For those of you who can't read the small print, um, the blue well, that really drives up quickly is the German uh, industry. Uh, as uh, Arno said, Germany represents 55% of the industry in 2006 uh, and uh, really is dwarfing the industry. So everything revolves sort of around what's happening in Germany. That's starting to change. Uh, there's some strong growth in Mediterranean countries in, uh, in Europe. Uh, and uh, the California program is set to be a big program. That is obviously what this is. This is actually the incentive. This is actually the megawatt installation targets from the California Solar Initiative. If this looks familiar and looks similar to the Japanese program, it's not a, an accident. Actually, the, you have a nice X in terms of the fact that the California Solar Initiative is a 10-year program. Subsidies are programmed to decline over 10 years, and hopefully the volumes go up. So we should see uh, strong growth in California. One thing that's happened that's very interesting is until a couple of years ago, the industry was dominated by Japanese and German companies. No accident, right? That's where the, that's where the end market was. What's changed is you see a lot more investment going on in California. We'll hear from Martin, who's a, running a California-based company here focused on solar. SunPower has become a major force in the industry. There's a lot of investment from co- companies outside of the country coming into California because they see it as a key end market. The last thing I'd point to in terms of driving forces are renewable portfolio standards around the country. Uh, This is somewhat of a mixture of color chart here, uh, but it basically says that there's intended to be very strong growth uh, across the country as each of the states have mandated a renewable portfolio standard. A lot of debate going on in the federal government and Congress about what to do about a national RPS, and we'll see what happens. So just a few quick trends to watch, things that we pay attention to. Number one is declining costs. Uh, this is going to be the biggest thing that will enable the industry to grow. Uh, the industry has targeted reduction of cost by 50% within five years. That's very, very fast cost reduction. Uh, but that's really what's required in order to help make it more economical to more people. Um, you can say that solar is economical to those of us who are in the Tier 5 class in PG&E because we pay so much money, but that doesn't really help you in the middle of the country. Uh, but as the costs come down fairly dramatically, it makes it uh, more economical for more people. Second is new materials. New materials. Uh, and I'd get into the details here at some other time. But basically, this is a chart showing uh, advancements in newer materials. The vast majority of the industry is uh, using silicon as the semiconductor material. There's a lot of new innovations in new materials, and Martin will talk more about that since his company is leading that. Last year is uh, new products and new forms. I think it's funny that we've got solar that comes in a box that you bolt on your roof you got something that's sitting in a glass and an aluminoclase box and you literally put a hole through the weatherproof membrane on your roof, which just doesn't seem right. I live in a house that has lots of leaks. makes me nervous to put more holes there. So what are some of the things that are changing? You know, I, I, maybe it's because I worked at Apple and I think about product design that just doesn't seem right. The top left here is a shingle. Um, that is uh, was created by um, uh, or was made by Powerlight, which is a uh, now owned by SunPower. Powerlight's a Berkeley-based company that got bought by SunPower's uh, San Jose-based company just recently. And this is uh, a roofing shingle that is a solar panel in and of itself, and it uh, you bolt it down onto your roof, and you have a roof and a solar panel all in one. The bottom left here is actually an interesting facade on a building. This is uh, the Krupp uh, headquarters. And they used the solar and made it into a design. The blue parts of that building are actually solar. And they made it into a sort of an interesting design. I've been told, I have been there, but I've been told that just you know, behind the camera is a river, so it actually makes interesting, you know, sort of an interesting context. And so those are two examples of what's called building integrated. That's basically saying we're going to take the solar and we're going to make it part of the building material. The last thing over here is solar thermal. Um, The idea here is instead of converting photons from the sun and making it into electricity, you're taking the heat from the sun and you're boiling a liquid. That is actually a, a design from a company that was in Australia that just got moved here because they got money from some venture capitalists here in the valley, and I guess they decided they didn't want to fly to Australia for board meetings, so they got moved here to California. And it's a pretty elaborate system of large mirrors that they're going to put out in the desert. Uh, and uh, it sounds like the cost uh, structures there would actually be pretty interesting these days. So a quick overview. I'll pass it back to the, the mic, and we'll move on.
1: Thank you, David. Let me go ahead and introduce then our next panelist, Mike Hall. Um, Michael Hall is chief marketing officer and director of Borrego Solar Systems, Inc., where his primary focus has been the sales and marketing of commercial grid-tied solar power systems, Prior to joining Borrego Solar, Mike worked as a product uh, development engineer for Applied Materials in Santa Clara. He holds a master's degree in chemical engineering from Stanford University and a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from the uh, UC Santa Barbara. Um, I think the main reason I asked Mike to be on this panel is really that he represents uh, the perspective of someone who's on the front line, so to speak, in the solar uh, markets these days, and brings what I would call sort of the view from the roof to our discussion today. So please join me in welcoming uh, Michael Hall.
4: Oh, oh, uh. oh. Uh, so thank you for that introduction. Um, so, just a brief introduction about Borrego solar, so you guys know uh, where in the solar industry I 'm coming from. Um, we provide turnkey photovoltaic systems, which means we design and build solar electric systems so uh, we put lots of holes in roofs and put lots of these glass uh, glass boxes on and they don 't leak so don't worry um <laughs> But uh, we have offices in San Diego, Berkeley, and San Jose, and uh, we provide solutions for residential, commercial, and government applications. Uh, we do 2 kilowatts up to about 500 kilowatts. So those are the markets that we plan. Um, we currently employ about 75 people in California. So uh, as Arno said, I wanted to give you guys a view from uh, – a company. We're dealing directly with consumers, directly with building owners, and uh, talk a little bit about trends we see and some of the uh, drivers and challenges that we see in, in dealing with uh, getting these projects developed. So um, some of the trends that we've seen, um, the first one might be surprising, but that's that technolo- technology development has actually been quite slow. Um, forever we've been hearing about new ways of generating solar electricity and uh, revolutionary products, new materials, but really we have seen very little productization. And we're using the same fundamental um, equipment that we were using five years ago when I got into this industry. And it's actually the same equipment, uh, the same building blocks we were using when our company was founded in 1980. So, regardless of all, uh, despite all the investment um, into new technologies, we've seen very little productization. On the other hand, we have seen a lot of innovation on the integration side. So we've seen uh, new engineering techniques, new design techniques, new construction techniques, um, new, not technology products, but new ways of, of, of putting systems together that have really cut the cost, the installed cost of solar electric systems. Um, we've seen a huge push to create new financial products. There's a lot of money, uh, VC investment money, going into companies that are trying to come up with creative ways to finance residential and commercial products and we've especially seen a big push just over the last six months with this big commitment from the state to this uh, 10-year California solar initiative. We've seen a very strong trend towards larger systems, and for a multitude of reasons, I'm sure a lot of which we'll cover during the uh, discussion portion, uh, we, there's, there's, there's just motivation to try and capture every single dollar in economy of scales. So systems are getting bigger. People are, people are trying to put bigger and bigger systems together, and, and, and smaller systems are kind of going by the wayside. Um, Another very strong trend we've seen is a shift towards Chinese manufactured products. I don't say this as a positive or a negative, but just as a fact. Uh, When I started in the industry five years ago, everything we used, the PV equipment, the uh, inverters, uh, it was all manufactured either in the U.S., uh, Japan, or Germany. And now there's just a huge push from China. A lot of Chinese manufacturers bringing over PV material um, and also even inverter technology being uh, uh, manufacturing outsourced to China. Um, there's a lot of integrator consolidation, and what I mean by that is integrators uh, are companies like us, companies who design and build. And so a lot of those companies are, are merging and acquiring each other and trying to build up some kind of economies of scale to try and, uh, to try and capture some savings there. But at the same time, there's lots of new players all across the value chain. There's new, new technology companies who are, are trying to develop new ways of generating uh, the electricity, and then there's, there's new integrators with new business models. So there's, there's just a huge number of new players coming into this market. Uh, just quickly, some of the drivers and challenges that we see for the market. Uh, I think the biggest driver—it's a really simple one—and it's just increased awareness and acceptance. Uh, I think that we're really close to one degree of separation, which means that most people in California now either know someone who's put solar on their roof or their building or their home, or know someone who's working in solar or who have been to a, a meeting like this and, and just know what solar is. When I when I started in this industry five years ago, that just wasn't the case. We'd go and talk to people. And they just didn't understand that you didn't need batteries, and, and it just, they, just, they just didn't understand. They had no frame of reference. But now it's, it's down to about one degree of separation, and so that leads to acceptance. People believe that it's a viable alternative. Uh, there's just a very increased sense of urgency in regards to global warming. We all knew about global warming five years ago, but now everybody wants to do something about it now, and they're willing to take, take on personal responsibility for doing something, so that's a big driver. Um, the rebates and, and tax credits are definitely market makers. Without those, it's, it's a very tough, uh, tough financial picture for anyone making this investment. So so those are uh, a very significant driver. Um, and then the last driver uh, I have listed is increases in energy prices. And over the last 10 years, we've seen significant increases in energy prices, but even over the last two years. Uh, and it's, it's disproportionately hit the high-end residential users. And some high-end residential users have seen uh, inside 12-month periods 60% increases in their per-unit energy cost. And so that's just been a huge driver, especially on the residential market. Um, some of the challenges we've seen, um, equipment prices and availability. Uh, if you've been following the solar industry at all, you know that we had a severe polysilicon shortage, and that basically meant we didn't have enough silicon to create the solar panels or the solar modules we needed that the market demanded. And that drove prices up and, and drove up leads time. So that's been probably the biggest challenge uh, people in my uh, my part of the industry have faced. Um, an inconsistent message. It's really great that there's all this investment coming in and all these new technologies and new players and, and all kinds of new policies, you know, that no showed. But uh, the challenge is, is that it, it really creates a little bit of, of, of uncertainty. Um, everybody's kind of wondering, uh, you know, what? well, we can do this now, but what is this other company going to be able to do in six months? Is the cost going to be half? Is there going to be some revolutionary new product? Is is next year the, the Fed going to pay for the entire thing? And so that leads to a lot of... Uh, wait and see. And so uh, it's hard to get people to commit to the investment when there's kind of this inconsistent message from the industry. And then lastly, I'll, I'll just group these two together and, and say it's, it's generally policy work and policy both at the uh, uh, in negotiating with the uh, at the state level and the federal level, but also negotiating with the utilities, one of the significant contributors to cost installed cost of these systems is actually the administrative burden of, of dealing with the utilities, um, dealing with the uh, program administrators, the rebate program administrators, and, and pushing paperwork, and dealing with these larger bureaucracies and i 'm not necessarily faulting them i 'm just saying that it 's a fact that streamlining uh, Streamlining this process and reducing the administrative burden is probably the the, the low hanging fruit in terms of reducing the installed cost. Uh, so that's my entire presentation. Pass
1: Thank you, Michael. Uh, our next speaker is Martin Rocheisen. Uh, who I learned from his bio, was named one of the United States' top ten entrepreneurs under 40 by Fortune in 2003. Um, He is the CEO of NanoSolar, a company he Mm co-founded to develop thin-film solar cells with the potential to make solar electricity vastly less expensive. Martin has a successful track record as an entrepreneur that includes companies such as eGroups, which is sold to Yahoo, Trading Dynamics, sold to Ariba, and FindLaw, which is sold to Thomson's West Group. Martin holds advanced engineering degrees from Stanford and from Munich Technical University. He's an accomplished leader and frequent speaker at events ranging from leading academic and industry groups to the White House, and I think what Martin is bringing to our discussion today is really his perspective as an entrepreneur, and particularly as an entrepreneur pioneering what uh, may be the solar material of tomorrow uh, that promised to reduce costs and help expand the industry's growth even further. So Martin, uh, please join me in welcoming Martin.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. Um, at NanoSolar, we we're very focused on cost efficiency uh, of solar panels. So the the key key component uh, that collects sunlight and directly converts it into electricity, and that by itself is uh, some something somewhat of a new thing in the if you look at the past five years, because historically, if you look at the industry, it's been dominated by a lot of people who had sort of a somewhat often an efficiency fetish almost to the extent that, you know, a lot of academic work, a lot of uh, private companies with uh, focus on solar for space applications, who are always asking the question, how efficient are the cells, how efficient are they, and then pushing efficiencies from 18 to 19 or 20%, even though, you know, the difference between 19 and 20% is just an incremental 5%. And so... um, when we set out in 2001-2002, uh, which at, uh, was at a point when on a scale from 1 to 10 in terms of investability in the space, we were at uh, at a minus 2, to the extent that uh, the uniform advice we received from people throughout the Silicon Valley here is are two things. One is uh, no venture capitalist will ever fund us, and secondly, this is never, ever going to happen. No one is ever going to do this in Silicon Valley here. And we received the advice to um, speak with General Electric about these type of things. And um, fortunately we didn't, and just uh, about 18 months later we had more innovation dollars in terms of R&D concentrated on next generation solar than than all of General Electric, which allowed us to, to build out um, – really a technology platform that we're we're leveraging uh, beginning to leverage right now and see begin to see in the marketplace so the key our at the outset was you know we we're gonna focus on dollars per watt the key um... cost efficiency metric. so where, where, where dollars is measured in terms of think about the a solar panel of a certain size a square meter you know how many how many dollars a square meter does the solar panel cost you and how many watts per square meter does it deliver? And so the ratio of that is uh, dollars per uh, watt. And how do you make a, a factor of a difference? You know, how do you make a, an order of magnitude, a 10x difference on dollars per watt? And um, with existing technologies of solar cells, which are anywhere between the you know, 10, 15, 20, 25% efficient, it's obvious you cannot make a ten x difference on the on the performance side, you know, because there's not, no such thing as a two hundred percent efficient solar cell, and the physical limit on low uh, physics imposed limit on low cells is around thirty percent. So, you know, you could with a fifteen percent cell, you could only hope to make a a two x performance improvement. So it's clear the if you want to make a 10x difference on cost performance, you've got to work on the on a dollars per square meter side and come up with fundamentally inexpensive ways of collecting sunlight and uh, converting it reasonably efficient into, into electricity. And on a dollars per square meter basis, uh, it needs to start with a couple of things. First of all, you, you cannot start with a a wafer-based, a silicon wafer-based technology, uh, because while wafers have been awesome in the microelectronics industry. And so sort of the, the first generation of uh, solar companies have, le- have been a good leveraged offshoot of uh, the wafer technology in the microelectronics industry. The, the fact is the microelectronics industry has been riding on, certainly not on a, on a dollars per square meter cost reduction of silicon wafers it 's been writing on the integration density and other other things how you use those wafers uh, that you know dollars per square meter of a wafer don 't come down in fact they 're extremely capital expensive to produce so um, we we need to start out with a material that um, and, and that people have also been developing in, in in research and development for over the past thirty years in, in many distinguished groups around the world so there are other semiconductors, other absorbers that absorb sunlight far more efficiently in terms of the thickness. So, with with uh, one single micron as opposed to two hundred micron as in a, in a silicon cell, cell so two hundred times thinner, you can absorb the same amount of sunlight as a, a silicon based semiconductor. Those are those are materials like um, a copper based semiconductor called uh, CIGS, which is a very unique. Uh, photovoltaic specific semiconductor um, and so you start out with uh, optimizing the fundamental materials cost involved in your in your uh, solar cell by making the cells much much more thinner and those are called the thin film, thin film solar cells uh, that only use about one percent of the amount of the semiconductor material involved in in in, in typical solar cells. And uh, so the next question then is, how do you deposit those thin films? And uh, the first experience has been that there's been a lot of uh, laboratory techniques successful at at small scale to develop efficient cells based on these copper-based semiconductors. But these techniques, the process cost involved in using these techniques... To deposit these thin films. The process cost has been so high that at the end of the day, in the first generation of thin films, you didn't have a good advantage over conventional silicon solar cells because your, your product cost is ultimately your materials cost plus your process cost. So it required another entire generation of very science intense research and development to figure out how to deposit very thin films. With processes that are extremely um, inexpensive and simple, and and frankly, processes that are very unlike anything used in the semiconductor industry, for instance, The semiconductor industry is fundamentally in a in a in a very different um, you know dollars per square meter or dollars per kilogram economics than what's required in, in solar because solar is is um, you know sunlight is a dilute source of energy. So you've got our gotta our catch sun rays over quite some area to get some value out of them. You if you calculate sort of the value proposition, the value economics, you've got to be fundamentally less expensive, typically in terms of throughput and of value, two orders of magnitude less expensive than a lot of semiconductor techniques. And so the processes that we focused on that are that are clearly the least expensive are more like a, a conventional printing press, you know, like a newspaper is being produced in a in um, in a in a, in a printing pros- process technique. So you have a solution, and you just coat that solution, and you dry it, and you convert it into a semiconductor. It's basically these type of techniques. The science involved in this, and the recipes are very simple, but the science involved has been um, tremendous difficult to sort out because you've got to figure out how to simply print the the a precursor to the semiconductor, which yields a very efficient solar cell, and that in our case required the use of uh, of nanoparticles that turn into that semiconductor. Those are nanoparticles that are about um, 20 nanometers in size, very tiny. You've got to figure out how to create them, how to disperse them, how to print them, etc. But fundamentally, um, this has been the type of work happening at Nanosol over the past um, over the first um, two three years of a company's existence, um, until we sorted out the process, and 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 then obviously benefited from the the newfound um, enthusiasm in the industry overall, and allowed us to to raise a sufficient amount of capital to uh, go into the manufacturing, engineering, and uh, operations development phase. And uh, at this point, we're building a, a factory in San Jose, which is uh, going to have um, redefining capacity, in part because of the the processes we use are so high throughput. And the printing process outputs so much material per minute that um, the order of magnitude of megawatt output is suddenly... Um, Orders of magnitude higher than your typical solar factors. You see, even though you know we we fit everything in one one uh, reasonable building, and um, so that's work going on right now. Those are those are big tools. Those are hundred foot long, hundred feet long tools, with uh, significant um, effort on the on the manufacturing engineering. And um, uh, but these are the types of products you're going to start seeing um, later this year, and um, an increasing volume next year. And uh, this is part of the equation of uh, how the industry is going to change in terms of installations. So you're going to have see uh, more cost-efficient solar panels. These are going to drive the need to um, install solar panels more cost-efficiently because obviously if um, you have them or cut into third, the solar panels, then you want to install them easily to Ultimately, um, come up with far more cost-efficient systems, and and expand the um, the versatility of um, solar installations uh, all over. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Martin. <clears throat> A fascinating technology. Um, our final speaker tonight is uh, J.P. Ross, who is the policy director for Vote Solar uh, Initiative, a nonprofit working to build the economies of scale necessary to bring solar into the mainstream. J.P. has been instrumental in shaping key policy initiatives related to solar incentives and establishing solar-friendly utility tariffs. Before Vote Solar, J.P. served as a policy analyst with Greenpeace, Clean Energy Now team, and while at Greenpeace... or. Er- J.P. focused on uh, bringing solar to scale, including work on the San Francisco solar bond, as well as running the San Diego Go Solar campaign. Uh, J.P. is a leader and an insightful advocate for solar, uh, and I think uh, he'll add an interesting perspective to our panel today because he's someone who understands what publicly public policy levers need to be pushed and how to get it done. So please join me in
5: welcoming J.P. Thanks, Arno. Good evening. Um, I was at dinner a couple weeks ago now at Ploof, a restaurant down in the financial district. And uh, the dinner was fabulous, but that's not really the topic of conversation tonight. But I was talking with a friend of mine who's uh, at Sun Edison in Maryland, uh, a company that installs solar systems across the country. And he informed me that there was a little bit of a sleeper bill going on in Maryland, uh, an increase to the renewables portfolio standard that would create a market for 1,400 megawatts of solar uh, installations over the next uh, 15 years in that state. Now, this is a huge program. Um, Maryland is a seventh the size of California, and this uh, uh, RPS program would only be half the size of California's very aggressive 3,000-megawatt goal, so it's three and a half times larger than California's goal for solar. They told me that it was a really tight race. It was going to be in the Senate Finance Committee this week. So, one of the things that Vote Solar does is we activate the public. We activate people who want to see solar brought into the mainstream. So, I got to my computer and I wrote up an email action alert that we sent out to our members in Maryland. Uh, I got on the horn. I started talking to friends at Rainforest Action Network, at Working Assets. Uh, between Rainforest Action Network and Vote Solar, we sent out uh, about 900 emails to residents of Maryland. Um, Within three days, we had delivered 2,000 emails to legislators in Maryland in support of this program. So that's 512 or so individual actions, which means that's a 60% response rate for the people who receive those emails then being activated and sending a note to their legislator. Yesterday, that bill passed 6 to 5 through the Senate Finance Committee. So... I'm not taking responsibility for this. There's great companies who are in Maryland, BP and, uh, and Sun Edison that were really leading the charge on this. But it's a key part of the puzzle. Public outreach and motivation is a key part of the puzzle. Tomorrow, it's going to uh, the full floor. And today, Working Assets delivered another two to 3,000 emails to their members. So after passing out of the Senate Finance Committee, they will be flooded with another round of emails before it goes to the floor. I mean, this is, this is great news. And so the reason I share this is, you know, for three reasons. One, it's good news. You guys obviously get that, the round of applause. Two is that this bill actually has the key policies and drivers necessary to create a sustainable solar market. It has interconnection. Interconnection is absolutely necessary for people who want to put solar on their buildings. There needs to be a transparent, non-arbitrary process. They can apply. The utility says, yes, you can put your system on your roof. When they're ready to plug it in, they can plug it in. They don't have to pay excess insurance. They don't have to wait for 30, 60, 90 days wondering where their application is. There needs to be standards for interconnection. Second, it has net metering, the ability to spin one's meters backwards when your solar system is producing more than your home or business is using. So residential customer, you install a solar system on your house. When you go away for the day, you obviously turn all your lights off and all your air conditioners, so your house has no energy requirements. And during that time, your meter needs to be able to spin backwards, so you are accruing. Credits for the electricity you are producing that you can use at a later time. That is net metering, a second key policy driver. The third is financial incentives. As gentlemen before me have been talking about, the costs of solar have been coming down. They need to come down a little bit more before we can be at uh, b- below cost equity, we call it, um, cost parity with the cost of buying electricity from the grid. So we need financial incentives to help bridge this gap over the next uh, five years, ten years, maybe three to four years, depending on what market you're in and how aggressive you think the cost of solar is coming down. Lastly, a key policy that this uh, bill does not address is rate design. That's something that uh, we're working on uh, very uh, strongly about solar that Arno... Uh, talked about. And we see the design of rates as actually critical for the long-term sustainability of a solar market. We absolutely are looking forward to the day where the cost of solar comes down to such a level that we don't need more financial incentives. And at that point in time, it is not only the cost of your electricity but the design of your electricity rates that will make the most difference. If someone pays $100 every month and uh, nothing for the amount the energy consumed, the kilowatt hours consumed, it doesn't make sense to turn off a light, let alone invest 10000 or a $1 or $2 million Dollars in a solar system. So, the design of electricity rates is crucially important for the long term sustainability and viability of a solar market. So, um, one of the things that that we're really excited about is the increased public support that we're seeing for solar and renewable energy across the country. Uh, In 2004, we did a field poll in California uh, in support of the Million Solar Roofs Bill. Um, at that point in time, 56 percent of the population in California polled responded that they would be willing to pay 50 cents a month on their bill extra to support a million solar roofs program. Um, we did a poll in Texas about three weeks ago now. 61 percent of the people polled in Texas were willing to pay more than 50 cents. And the interesting thing is that there was 11% of the people were willing to spend uh, 50 to 75 cents. 47% of the people were willing to spend 75 cents to a dollar. So you actually had an inverse poll ratio where there were more people willing to spend more money for solar. And that's something that we really want to convert into the public and political will to create solar markets. So let me take a straw poll. How many people here, if you got an email from, say, Vote Solar, to support a million solar roof program, uh, would an email to your legislator or politician about supporting a solar program. See a show of hands? Okay. Well, maybe not so surprising with the crowd tonight. And you should all sign up for Vote Solar because there's something bigger than that happening at the federal level right now, which is the federal investment tax credit. In 2005, the federal government passed the first major solar legislation for 20 years, a 30% investment tax credit for solar, uh, including solar thermal water systems as well as photovoltaics and big utility-scale concentrating solar power uh, projects. That's up for extension and expansion for a full 10 years. That's something that's happening right now, and you, uh, for the most part, are members of one of the most powerful people in Congress at this point in time. Nancy Pelosi has obviously heard the message. She's obviously on our side. But she ha- she's holding the reins right now, and she needs to hear from her constituents that this is something that she should not only support, she only gets one vote, that she should lead the charge on. So I encourage you all to either reach out through organizations that you work with or if you have relationships with your congressional representatives or hopefully the speaker herself, to reach out to them and tell them that this is absolutely something that we need to support at the federal level as well as across the state. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, JP. Um, So now's the point where we'll really sort of engage in a little bit of discussion, and I think we've gotten some great questions from the audience here, and I think time-wise we're right at the point where we go into the audience Q&A anyway, so uh, we'll dive right in. Um, One question, you know, that we always get, and I think it's worthwhile just to throw it out there, um, and I'll Mm -hmm. add a bonus question to the end, too, to see sort of how people want to respond to it, but... Um, the question is When will solar power be economic without government subsidies? And the bonus question I have to add to that is uh, Can you name an energy generating technology that is not somehow dependent on government subsidies? Shall we start with the, uh, you, David? <laughs> <laughs>
3: that is a trick question. Uh, uh, let's see, the date. could uh, I try and pick a day? No, I mean, I think actually the interesting thing, it's a good question. Um, it, it all depends on who you are and what you pay. Uh, I mean, I think that's one of, the, one of the great things is that the industry talks about trying to be uh, at grid parity, quote-unquote, in five years. Well, but grid me- parity means different things by different utility districts and means by different, by different person, right? I mean, even here in PG&E territory, you pay a very different rate if you're Tier 1 and if you're Tier 5. Um, so today, you know, round numbers, solar can cost you 25, 30 cents if you put it up on your house and you and you, you know, amortize it over a long period of time. And I'm not the expert, so I will defer that to be corrected uh, by the end of the table here. Um, uh, but that would, you know, the industry is trying to bring that down by half, so bring it down to fifteen cents. That makes a big difference. Um, In terms of uh, subsidies, uh, so I'll go with the five-year time frame because it it goes along with everybody else. Uh, In terms of subsidies, pretty much everything gets subsidized. Uh, I wrote a report about this actually uh, a few months ago. Uh, And it's actually quite surprising when you you actually calculate the amount of subsidies that every other industry gets. Uh, Renewables uh, tends to be uh, – the subsidies hang out there like a flag. Uh, because uh, I, just, I just think the industry isn't old enough yet to figure out how to hide them. Uh, and so everybody sees it, and so you know exactly how many cents per gallon of ethanol and exactly how many you know, dollars per kilowatt installed, and you just have no idea. It's hard to uncover how the subsidies in coal and oil and, and, and nuclear. Uh, uh, we tried. It was difficult. I don't think we caught
1: them all, but uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty deep. Martin, will you be uh, uh, bringing solar to uh, cost parity without subsidies?
2: Yeah, I think the right, real question is uh, at which point are we going to have clean electricity? You know, this is the – and how many years is it going to take to have clean power? You know, How many more years are we going to put out carbon dioxide or all these coal-fired plants? Because you know, we're going to reach grid parity very quickly if we ask the um, – while ensuring high profit margins for companies like Neosolar. Uh, if we ask the coal guys to um, shut down their plants and or pay for sequestration, which they can't do right now, um, and ask the nuclear guys to do proper insurance, you know, to insure us against accidents like Chernobyl, which cost $30 billion and which is a, a larger amount than the value of all of the nuclear power ever delivered in the Soviet Union, which tells you that, you know, nuclear power, just if you insure it properly, should really cost twice as much.
1: Anything to add to that, JP? Um,
5: yeah, I, I would just say that, that the reality is that, that solar is cost competitive um, with grid power in, very, in a very small number of markets. And the beauty of the situation is is that as the cost of solar comes down, it continues to open up more markets as it goes. And the reality is, is that in order to achieve what we need to achieve to avert the climate crisis, if if you uh, choose to use the new vernacular, is we need to get into that low range where solar is cost competitive with you know, Kansas and China and the places that are really going to start contributing massively or are contributing massively to greenhouse gas emissions. But the business models are there, and the businesses and the investment community is investing in the technologies that are going to increasingly, uh, at an increasingly rapid rate, bring down the cost of solar so that it can start tackling some of those much larger and much cheaper markets.
1: Great. And then, Mike, I think you almost sort of touched on a theme related to this that I think is interesting in your discussion, which is that we often talk about reduction of price at the module level, but, you know, a lot of price reduction that we're seeing right now today is happening with what you're doing. Uh,
4: certainly. I think uh, it's really important to talk about installed cost per watt or installed cost. Probably better to talk about installed cost per kilowatt hour per unit energy. And if you look at current installed costs, about half of it is actually in the integration or installation or uh, – It's on my end, essentially, in companies like us, uh, what it costs us to put these systems in and build these systems. And so I I don't know exactly when it's going to become cost competitive with grid parity. I think it all depends on what you define as cost competitive and how you do your return on investment analysis. I'll say two things that I think that over time the cost is going to come down, but it's going to come down incrementally. I think a lot of people are waiting for the step change, like all of a sudden tomorrow it's half the price, and I just don't think that's going to happen. And the other thing is in regards to cost competitive and sub- subsidizing existing forms of energy, I just feel that there's a subsidy that no one's talking about which is that all fossil fuel forms are essentially subsidized now because they're not paying for the, uh, the society or the environmental cost of the carbon emissions. And so because they don't have to pay for that, they're essentially subsidized. And so I think once we make them pay for that, as Martin said, then all of a sudden we come- become very competitive.
1: I think some people are working on solving that for sure. Um, One question we got that I think is is an interesting one, uh, and maybe start with JP on this, but, um, you know, often when we're talking about solar energy, we use all these projections that have sort of rising energy consumption. Um, Why don't we also talk about uh, reducing demand and and increased efficiency at the same time, and how do those two sort of work together? How does increased efficiency go hand-in-hand with the future of solar power in California?
5: Well, uh, as far as California is concerned, we'll st- start with the larger picture. In the larger picture, energy efficiency is absolutely necessary. If you look at the wedges necessary to avert climate crisis, uh, energy efficiency, according to the recent American Solar Energy Study uh, uh, Society report tackling climate change, is 50% of the reduction um, in greenhouse gas emissions and-, and energy consumption is due to energy efficiency. So it's... it's- the big, big, big gorilla in the room, and something we absolutely have to tackle. And it was incorporated into the California Solar Initiative. It was incorporated into Senate Bill 1. It's something that the Public Utilities Commission is currently working into, uh, the requirements for uh, receiving solar incentives. So, uh, you know, the Energy Commission and the utilities are investing $2 billion over the next two years in energy efficiency compared to $3 billion over the next 10 years in solar. This is not something that's lost on the regulatory utility and environmental community in Texas. I'm sorry, in California. Sorry, I'm working on a Texas bill, too.
1: (laughs) Does anybody else have anything to to add on that topic? Uh,
4: Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, I think, especially in solar circles, we tend to forget about energy efficiency, but it certainly is a low-hanging fruit. I I tell my sales team all the time, if we go into a room like this and everybody goes home and changes out an incandescent bulb, it's like we instantly put in about a 20-kilowatt PV system, and we did it overnight, and we did it for, like, $200. And uh, I don't think it's the entire solution, because when Arnaud was talking about how much increases we're going to see globally in the energy usage, but it's, it's certainly a low-hanging fruit, and it needs to be addressed.
3: Yeah, I think it's a good point. It's, it's, it's somewhat ironic. I was back at the um, uh, DOE recently talking to the Office of uh, Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, and that's actually one office at the DOE. Uh, and actually threw up some slides and talked about uh, the history of energy efficiency in California and just, you know, the stats over the past 30 years, um, the per capita electricity usage in California has remained flat relatively, whereas in the rest of the country it's gone up by about 40, 50 percent. In contrast, the um, sort of economic output per capita in California has gone up by about 40, 50 percent over that time frame, and uh, the economic output for the rest of the countries remained relatively flat. So uh, you, can, you obviously should, these things are not necessarily correlated and connected, but it obviously proves that uh, we didn't tank the California economy by focusing on efficiency. What's interesting is that that office does have some good programs on energy efficiency at the federal level, um, but they sort of sheepishly uh, admitted that they hadn't quite learned, you know, the Fed, you know from a national level we hadn't quite learned from California's um, example. Some of that is a focus on programs. Some of that is, frankly, just structural. You know, you, uh, California embraced decoupling, which basically means that PG&E can make money even if they don't sell any more, all right? So that's one of, the, one of the ways that that works, whereas in the rest of the country, the only way utilities make more money is if they sell more energy. It's just a, it's fundamentally not using market forces in the economy to work for you. So I think there are some structural changes that are being considered at the federal level which could make a big, big difference.
1: So I think we've covered that one pretty well, unless, Martin, you have something else to add. I have one uh, probably be good one for uh, you, because I think you were hanging out with some of our visitors from Germany recently. Um, Will California ever change its solar alternative energy programs and incentives to be more in line with what we're seeing in Germany, sort of feed-in tariff type model?
2: I mean, I I would hope that um, in in California the current schemes are extended um, to um, uh, the type of schemes that... I mean, Germany has set a good example. It's the, it's the ultimate investable scheme. It's a long-term predictable scheme. You can, as has a step function built in, you know, 6.5% for for, for large area installations is the, is the annual price reduction that you need to count on as a, as a manufacturer. And as a system integrator, you need to plan ahead, you know, four or five years, and you know exactly what type of uh, price points at the system level you need to be able to offer in order to have a certain market size and it's this type of predictability that uh, makes it very investable for for businesses in terms of manufacturing capacity in terms of the whole whole business setup and um, if we had something similar in california i'm, I'm not sure this is uh, going to happen now but um, the you know california also needs to be competitive on a, on a global basis in terms of incentives because otherwise the panels and the technology are going to flow wherever the incentive schemes are. You know, like manufacturers right now are not highly incented to build manufacturing capacity in California and or sell here because they might as well sell in South Korea, Spain, or Germany where just the... The incentive schemes are more predictable and uh, uh, deliver better value. And so um, I'm sure it's going to be an ongoing debate about what to do about this.
1: JP, I'd love to hear your perspective on whether you think feed-in tariffs are an appropriate policy mechanism in the U.S. or in California.
5: Sure. For those of you who weren't there, it almost came to blows between the Germans and the Americans. (laughs) The Germans saying the feed-in tariff is the best model, which is where someone just invests in a solar system, plugs it straight into the transmission grid, and gets 20 years of guaranteed payments for that system. Whereas in California, it's on the customer side of the meter. You're offsetting your own energy consumption. Um, It requires a lot more regulatory uh, uh, barriers to be reduced in California. Um, my response to that is that the uh, and the Germans were saying, "Look, we've got a gigawatt a year installed of solar, uh, which is ten times more than you're doing in California, if not more." Of that just go to the feed-in tariff, and the reality is that that it's not a, it's not a difference in policy; it's a difference in budget. In Germany, there's no budget limitation. If you had an unlimited budget in California. Uh, at current rebates levels or rebate levels that are as high as they are in Germany, which is substantially higher than in california you 'd see that kind of market growth as well so it 's not, it's not a policy debate it 's actually a financial debate. If we had the public where, the, the political wherewithal to create those types of budgets in California, you can be damn sure we 'd be advocating for them. But in the long run, I actually truly believe that the California model and the model that most of the rest of the country is following actually establishes the market conditions by which solar becomes cost competitive without public subsidies. In Germany, when the public will goes away, the solar program goes away. Kaput. Gone. In California, when the financial incentives come down, um, along with the installed cost of solar, you have an unlimited budget because you are the budget. The people who want to invest in solar, the people who want to maintain a flat cost of electricity for the next 20 years, you are the unlimited budget. And that is the difference between California and Germany. And it may take us a couple more years to get there. And believe me, if we could uh, allocate $3 billion a year for subsidies in California, we'd be pushing it. But we can't. Right now it's a political issue. And, uh, and that's our limitation.
1: Um, David, an interesting question for you. Um, recently we've heard quite a bit about the, uh, the shortage of silicon uh, supply constraining the, the – production capacity of all the the solar modules. So so basically for everybody who's been in the business, we haven't uh, been able to get our hands on as many panels as we'd like to, or at least not at the prices we'd like them at. Um, And I'm curious uh, what you see in your crystal ball looking forward as you talk to everybody and as you go out and look at uh, the folks who are putting big silicon plants in the ground. um, Will silicon continue to be a constraining factor, or is that something that we see easing?
3: Um. I'll give you sort of a yes and no answer. Um, I, I think that uh, – so, so the, basic, the basic issue here is, I said, that 95 percent of the market uses silicon um, uh, to make solar cells. And for those of you who don't understand how that works, it's a uh, – you take a big cylinder of silicon uh, and you slice it like little thin pancakes into wafers and that's how you make your solar cells. And so there's a big constraint over the fact that the silicon industry has been uh, focused on the semiconductor industry, which grew a heck of a lot, but it's growing at you know 8% a year, whereas the solar industry is now absorbing more silicon than the semiconductor industry. And it wants to grow at 30 40 50% a year, if it could. Um, and so this sort of sleepy industry of the silicon manufacturing industry has suddenly woken up that they need to build. So the big question is how fast can they build? And I'd say one thing, which is um, uh, that I think silicon will constantly be uh, a limiting factor because as the prices come down, um, the opportunity for solar is so enormous in comparison to what it is today um, that there, you, know, you, you can't see a point where there would be enough silicon to supply, enough solar to cover the entire U.S., right? I mean, once the prices get low enough for that. Um, second, though, I'd say the one, the one thing that's going to help it out is um, I think you have one of the strongest forces available uh, now working for you in this market. I actually recently heard Thomas Friedman talking about the challenge uh, that is in front of us and actually greening the country, and he said, you know, he, he said sort of patting myself in the back here, he said that the the, the, the only force that's large enough to get us over the Herculean effort that it means to green the country is Wall Street. It's the only thing that's powerful enough to make it happen. I think the one thing that it sees is everybody sees an opportunity to make money in this market. So there's more money chasing the opportunity to invest in silicon manufacturing and solar cell manufacturing than can possibly put to be put to work today. So there's the you know the market is wide open right now. If if, well, any-
2: if anyone reads the Wall Street Journal, you've got to just note that the Wall Street Journal is not Wall Street. You know, Wall Street is green. It just the Wall Street Journal isn't. <laughs>
1: Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I'm sure we could fill another hour probably with the discussion here. Um, so we have. Uh, oh, we have time for one more question. I've just informed. Uh, so I've just put away all my questions, though. Pick a good one. Tell a Yeah, it's really hard to pick a real good Martin, why don't you fill the air sort of while I'm trying to. Bring it. <laughs> Um, oh, you know, that's going to take forever. The problem is finding a, a short question that's going to. Uh... Oh. <laughs> Sorry? How do you, Okay, that's a great question. So thank you, Julie Blendon <laughs> yeah, from uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> SunPower in the front here.
5: Uh,
1: you know, a nice practical question. We'll start with Mike because he probably has a great answer and everybody else as well. Um, and I'll add a little bit to it too. How do you, how do you get solar on your house today? And uh, do you have solar on your house? Uh,
4: that's a really good question. Um, I'll take the first question first. <laughs> uh, I, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah and then I'll make excuses for why the second answer to the second question is no. Um but to get solar on your house go to www. no, just preregos. <laughs> but um there are lots of companies like us okay, so who uh, or go solar California is actually the the state site and uh And that gives you a lot of information about the rebate programs. But uh, companies like us, we really do provide turnkey solutions. And uh, we're not the only company. There are are hundreds of companies in the state, I'd say probably ten, who are doing a large volume of business. And really, these companies can navigate you through um, the administrative issues with dealing with city permits, dealing with uh, utility issues, dealing with the uh, – capturing the rebates from the state and also go, go out design a system and do an analysis a return on investment analysis for you so you can see if it is the right financial ben, uh, right financial decision for you and so I think uh, there's this people think there's this big barrier for entry but it's actually it's gotten a lot simpler over the last few years as companies like us have become more sophisticated in our approach and come with a more turnkey uh, approach to these
1: uh, to these systems yeah I remember seeing a stat uh, from the CDC <laughs> at one point. I think right around 2001, there was something like 30 or 40 solar integrators in California. And uh, by the end of 2005, I think that number was north of 700. So there are a lot of folks out there to help.
2: So uh, I've I've got to do this, of course. Um, If you buy solar panels today, this year, you're going to lock yourself into this technology for the next 30 years. (laughs) And you're gonna be annoyed 29 out of his 30 years. Where where are the panels, Martin?
0: <laughs>
5: Show me the panels.
1: <laughs>
5: so one
3: one quick one quick comment just uh, just to talk about another San Francisco-based company. Um, uh, so uh, I'll step forward and actually answer the second question, which is I, I honestly do not have solar panels on my roof, but I'm planning it as part of a construction project, so it will happen. But I think one thing that's interesting as you look at it, sometimes it can be daunting in terms of the capital up front, right? And that's been a challenge for the industry, and there's a lot of new innovative business models coming out in terms of how to provide it to a customer and basically allow you to pay for it, so you're basically getting a mortgage. There's a new bank in San Francisco called New Resource Bank, which actually has a, which has, has a program to help specifically finance solar, installations, which means that you're not plucking down the tens of thousands that you may want to put on your roof, but uh, they are, and then you basically have a monthly fee, which makes it even easier. And I think that's a key thing that's going to make this whole system work much better, is if you're not financing it off of your own personal balance sheet, it's coming off of somebody else's.
0: At this stage in the program, when we get to the end and have not had a chance to get all the questions answered, I'm always So disappointed because I know and in looking at the questions that came forward, I I really apologize that we did not have time to uh, cover all the questions, but I do think many of the panelists are willing to and able to stay after a little while tonight, so if you have some other things uh, that you'd like to chat with them about, please come forward. Uh, I do want to thank uh, each of the panelists as I move left to right from the audience perspective. uh, Mr. Arno Harris, who's CEO of Recurrent Energy, Inc., uh, a major player in this emerging and, and uh, field. And um, next to him, is David Edwards, Managing Director of Think Equity Partners, LLC. Next is Martin, and I know I'm going to mess this up, Rosh Heisen. Uh, I should have listened better. CEO of Nano Solar, Inc. And uh, next to Martin is J.P. Ross, Director of Programs for Vote Solar. And uh, on the end down there is Michael Hall, Chief Marketing Officer of Borrego Solar. And uh, please join me in giving them a round of applause. I certainly do want to thank our audience here, uh, and especially your patience, as we did get started late in getting everybody checked in and, and registered. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating over 100 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thank you all for coming.